Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. Congratulations. You have found the internet's finest podcast for music that was recorded by a man who puts his records in the fridge. In the freezer? Eh, Either way. So we are continuing our series of albums made in isolation of some sort called the Desert Island Recordings. But we're going to start with a little bit of trivia. We normally don't, or at least we haven't yet, done any trivia on these shorter episodes. But I was so happy with Ryan's trivia from our last show that I I wanted him to do some more and and so we are going to do just a very abbreviated version of trivia. Do you remember what that trivia was called? I don't remember what the trivia was called. It's called Supergroup Therapy. Supergroup Therapy. Thank you. Uh, for those of you who are uh, listening and uh, maybe didn't listen to the last episode, here's how this trivia goes. I am going, well, we are going to read, we're going to go back and forth. We're going to read the names of some musicians who are in pretty famous bands. And we have to go ahead and surmise the name of their supergroup based on the names of the bands that these musicians are in. It will never be more than two total bands that we're naming. We're not going to go crazy. Which of us should go first? I'll go first. All right. Here's my first supergroup. Butch Hancock, Jimmy Dale Gilmore, and Dylan Carlson. Dylan Carlson? I don't know that name. Mm, It's going to be hard then. Something flat. Is he in a band called Earth Society? (laughs) Not Earth Society. Flat Earth? Yes, the Flat Earthers. Yeah, that's right. It's It's a guy from Earth. Okay, okay. I don't I don't know any of their names. I like their songs, I don't know their names. He's he is like the guy. I'm pretty sure he's he's the man. Oh, okay. Okay. Good job. You you uh, got it anyways. Good job. All right. My first one is Chris Hillman, Graham Parsons, Diana Ross. <laughs> That's the Burrito Supremes. It is Burrito Supreme. Yep. Very good. Very good. All right. Here we go. Billy Bragg. Steve Marriott and Peter Frampton. So, Billy Bragg wasn't in a band, so I'm assuming that some part of this new supergroup is going to be part of his name. Is that right? That's a fair assumption. Okay. Is it Humble Bragg? It's Humble Bragg. Very good. All right, my next one is John Doe, Exine Cervenka, John Lankford, and Sally Timms. Okay, so you have X and the Mekons, or potentially Knitter's Mekons. Mekons X, Mekons Knitter's, X Mekons, 
Exeters. Mekon's X. I don't know. I can't ask. I'm stumped. Ex-cons. Oh, God. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> I like that one. All right. <laughs> Here you go. Howard DeVoto, Barry Ad- Adamson, Warren Ellis, and Mick Turner. Let's see. So, Bad Seeds, Dirty Three, or... Crime in the City Solution, is that the other... Or Magazine, sorry, Magazine and Magazine and Dirty Three. Dirty Magazine? Dirty Magazine, good job. Excellent. All right, my final one, the one I am most proud of. David Berman, Robert Schneider, John Hill. So David Berman was Silver Jews. Robert Schneider was Apples and Stereo. There's silver apples. Could be purple mountains. Purple apples. Silver apples isn't another band name. It is. I'm not. That's not the right answer. Okay. Silver Jews and stereo. Silver Jew apples. Oh, <laughs> apple juice. <laughs> there you go. It's apple juice. That's really good. (laughs) That might be the best one ever. All right, let's move on to our subject for today. Everybody is talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. Faced with the prospect of an untimely death, 25-year-old Mary Lambert Swale drew up an unusually specific last will and testament. The daughter of a wealthy English family, Swale anonymously bequeathed to the Anglican Church of Toronto 5,000 sterling, an astronomical sum in 1845, to erect a new church. The gift came with stipulations, however. The building must be constructed in the Gothic style with a cruciform structure. The congregation must be named Church of the Holy Trinity, and, most importantly, that all people be welcome in the church, and that its pews be free and unappropriated forever. This last request was a radical one, as a common practice among Anglican churches of the time was charging pew reservations as a way to allow the more affluent to worship undisturbed by the pathetic prayer riffraff. The Church of the Holy Trinity was dedicated in October 1847, and its doors have evermore been open to all. It is fitting that this deference to the past, insistence on beauty, and the requirement for openness would be built into a church that, 140 years later, would play host to a recording session that would make the environment a critical aspect of its music. The Cowboy Junkies would hole up in the Trinity Church and quietly play their haunting shoegaze Americana into a single microphone nestled in the midst of the five-story cathedral. The hushed beauty that was committed to tape in that sacred place on the Trinity Session is a commentary against the increasingly digital and frantic world surrounding them.
may be a little hard to believe, but the Cowboy Junkies started as a post-punk band called The Hunger Project. A far cry from the smoky sounds to come, The Hunger Project was formed by Michael Timmons and Alan Anton with vocalist Liza Dawson-Whisker, who moved from their native Toronto to New York City. The band later moved to London, toured some, and released a single to minor acclaim. After a year spent working in a record store and being introduced to jazz and early blues, the band morphed into a more improvisational outfit called Germinal, which released two very limited LPs. Again, the band created some buzz, but nothing really came of the albums. Germinal broke up with Timmons and Anton packing up their toques and returning to the Great White North. Back in Toronto, they contemplated a new direction. Renting a house on 547 Crawford Street in the city's Portuguese neighborhood and insulating the garage, Timmons and Anton started playing around with new songs and recruited Michael's brother Peter to sit in on drums. Michael was pleased with the sound the trio was producing, but felt that it needed a distinct female vocalist to pull it together. Eventually, the Timmons brothers talked their sister Margot into singing some songs for them. Despite an apprehension for being on stage, she decided to ignore being accepted into grad school and instead focus on the band. The subdued arrangements and whispered singing that became their hallmark has its origins in their poorly soundproof garage. Located right next to their neighbor's home, if the band got too raucous, the police would show up. This happened at their very first practice. Michael modified their sound and focused on reverb and space rather than volume while Peter used brushes rather than sticks, and Margot found that her voice was far more effective when using muted tones. After some time practicing, they played out having settled on the name Cowboy Junkies, for no other reason than it sounded cool. At their first show, a mutual friend and self-taught audio engineer, Peter Moore, watched as the band was completely drowned out in the crowded bar. They played slow and quiet, with the lead singer turned away from the audience, or having her head tucked under her arm like a vampire sneeze. He loved it and immediately started concocting ideas. Moore had a long history of creating inspired recordings. He worked as a DJ for the college radio station of University of Western Ontario, where he would go out and tape punk bands with a Kunstkopf dummy head microphone that allowed for binaural sound. As we talked about with Morris on a recent episode of his podcast, Love That Album, Lou Reed used this technique for the recording of his seminal tweaker insult comedy album, Take No Prisoners, because it truly gives the feeling of being right there at the show, 360 degrees of sound. Moore started a punk label called Silent Head, where he spent way more time fiddling with sound setups, microphone arrangements, and inscrutable rigging systems than probably any other engineer in the history of punk. 
Based on his talent and skill, he was much sought after and started working on producing jazz and classical music as well as television soundtracks. Peter Moore had recently taken out a bank loan for a high-end Calrec ambisonic microphone for $9,000. That's a sack full of loonies, eh? <laughs> he ended up recording the Cowboy Junkies' first album at their rented house with the band in the garage while he was in a makeshift control room in their kitchen. A mattress was used to dampen the volume of the drums. The resulting record, mostly blues and rock covers, was called White's Off Earth Now. Here's a rendition of Springsteen's State Trooper, which we covered on another Desert Island recording about Nebraska. They shopped their debut record around, but ended up self-releasing on their own label, Latent Records. Even though the sales were modest, and it was an import only to the U.S., the band garnered enough attention to warrant a small tour of the states. The band found that they were particularly well-received in the southern states. Barely making enough money to fill up the gas tank, they had to rely on the kindness of strangers for meals and to find floors to sleep on. Despite this, they loved the time spent listening to classic country radio. Late-night drives between gigs were illuminated with the sounds of Hank Williams and Patsy Cline. The speed of life in the South and the open, lonesome music became a huge part of the development for their next album. The band was recoiling from the modern digital world and the vacuous music that reflected the times. Simultaneously, but separately, Moore was also experiencing this desire for simpler, more human-forward music, away from the MIDI-dominated 80s fair. He had a musical epiphany after listening to Dire Straits' Brothers in Arms and a 1956 Billie Holiday record back-to-back. He stated that, I was angry that the music had gotten into drum machines and MIDI. No humanity, no nothing. I'm listening to these recordings from the 50s with two or three mics, and I'm going, man, that's real music. The group's purposeful choice to step backward was long in the making. Peter Moore had recorded jazz and orchestral music in churches before and suggested that the band think about this tactic. He even specifically named the Trinity Church because the pews were movable and the acoustics perfect, with the wood floor, coarse stonework, and its tall ceiling with the big oak rafters. Not a fancy church, but it was staid and solemn. Despite the church being fairly progressive, Moore was concerned that they might not be thrilled about having a rock and roll outfit called the Cowboy Junkies record on sacred ground. So he bore a bit of a false witness and told the church that the session was for the Timmins family singers, who were recording a Christmas special for the Canadian Broadcast Corporation. The church was amenable to the wholesome Von Trapp-like ensemble and agreed. The cost for renting the church was a hundred bucks. Moore said the total cost for recording was 125 when you factored in the back bacon for the band and a bribe to the church caretaker to let them stay late and finish up, though some stories have the total cost closer to 250 The band was still worn out and broke from the tour, so the church fit perfectly in their shoestring budget. Early in the morning on November 27, 1987, Moore and the band hauled their equipment into the church 
They only had a few hours before a collection of invited guests would arrive to start recording. To obtain the correct dynamics, they placed the microphone in the middle of the room and started a trial and error process of precise locations of the instruments and amps. They started with the snare drum and worked out from there. Margot sang into a PA system that was left at the church, but stood about 30 feet to the side, the only musician not in the immediate circle orbiting the single mic. Moore fashioned himself a control booth in a cloakroom off to the side of the church. For six hours, they would test and adjust placement relative to the microphone. Moore used a technique he'd developed earlier with spacing everything in a cloverleaf pattern to properly crest rich live-sounding stereo sound with instruments on top of each other. The band also had to deal with tourists coming in to check out the church and burst of radio frequency from the nearby CN Tower. They persevered, and around 2.30 in the afternoon, the guest musicians arrived with harmonicas, mandolins, accordions, dobros, fiddles, pedal steels, and the recording began in earnest. With everything in place, after a couple run-throughs, the band recorded straight through until about midnight. Everyone recognized that what they were making was beautiful, but no one quite knew what it would sound like. The bass was languid, but glistening. The guitar would quietly drone in the background of the songs until it rang out like a Santo and Johnny lullaby. Margot's singing was so patiently drawn out that it created a sense of tense anticipation in the listener, who was hanging onto each prolonged syllable. The brushed drums softly swished along as only a nudging reminder for the band to continue on toward an end. The sound that it emanated was a slow burn of quiet textures. The other instruments would ease in and out to add depth, color, and character. The church became the most integral instrument of all with its warm dynamic acoustics supplied by the creaking wood beams and the furnace hum. The sparse but painstakingly executed production was perfect to obtain an atmosphere that was ethereal, immersive, and eternal. Fitting right in was the reworking of classic roots songs, folk country, and the dreamier moments of early rock and roll. It was traditional comforting music walking home by itself on a Sunday morning after a Saturday night of escapades. Despite the legend that the entire album was recorded in a single night, there was an additional session. Margot and Moore returned to the church on a lunch break a few days after the first session to record an a cappella version of Canadian folk singer James Gordon's working of the traditional Mining for Gold. Behind her honey-coated singing, you can hear the presence of the church maybe better than any other song on the record. Oddly enough, Mining was in the Timmins' bloodline as their great-grandfather, Noah Timmins, was an Ontario mining magnate. On the line, boys, on the line, boys, drill your holes and stand in line till the shift boss comes to tell you you must drill her out on time. Can't you feel the rock dust in your lungs? It'll cut down a miner when he is still... The whole session was recorded directly to Betamax tape, which means there was no mixing, no overdubbing, and no editing, a fact that was bragged about on the sleeve of the record. Moore, who if you haven't guessed by now is a bit of an eccentric, also talked in an interview about mastering the record using F.A., F.A., of course, being 
fuck all. So no mastering either. Doesn't really seem necessary, um, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> poor, poor interviewer. What does the FA stand for there, E? <laughs> Is that finer arrangement? <laughs> <laughs> Trinity Session was about as close to a live recording as a studio album could get. Speaking of the eccentricity of Moore, we found an article where he's talking about his fondness for vinyl. He states, What I like about vinyl is that it's a unique performance. That needle is dancing in the groove and is putting on a performance for the listener every time a record is played. And it will never be played the same way twice because it's a mechanical device. So the vinyl changes after it's played. It heats up. If you play it again right away, it will not sound as good. So, the great part of the interview, and we need to add a little disclaimer, the legal department at Highway Hi-Fi does not sanction this method, but Moore goes on to say, I don't like to give away my secrets, but I will. Stepping back, he totally gives his secrets away all the time. Don't tell him anything. <laughs> he, he just talks and talks. He will. There's so much information about him talking. So, anyways. He's a bean spiller. He sounds like a genius, but I don't believe he'll keep your secret. Margot's having an affair, <laughs> Moore goes on to say, I don't like to give away any of my secrets, but I will. After I play a record, I put it in the freezer for an hour. After I take it out, I play it again. It will sound as close to the same as before. Otherwise, you have to wait a day or so. So you heard it here first on Highway Hi-Fi. Make sure you freeze those records. It's a really good idea. Well, here's my thing. If you play it once and change it, why would it make any difference between you freezing it or waiting a day? And if you have to freeze it for an hour and then play it again, like if you really want to listen to a record twice, do you want to listen to it, wait an hour and listen to it again? That just make it, he's crazy. Well, doesn't that also contradict his earlier statement about every time you play a record, it's slightly different? Don't you want it to be slightly different? It's a unique experience each time. Maybe slightly worse. Every time you listen to a record, it's getting worse. Oh, it's degrading? Okay. But not if you freeze them. Okay, back to the junkies. One of the neat things about the nature of the recording is that the band essentially had a copy of the completely finished album on cassette a few days after the recording. The Timmons brought a tape home to play for their mom. Their mom told the kids very certainly that, you know, your life is never going to be the same, eh? Mom was right. Trinity's Session was originally released on the band's own label, Layton Records, in 1988. A young entertainment lawyer and fan of the band, Graham Henderson, asked for 20 copies of the tape to work on getting a distribution deal. Well, it worked pretty well as several major labels beckoned. However, most of them wanted the album redone in a studio proper. Finally, RCA picked up the album, agreeing to leave it untouched, and released it worldwide. Henderson also eventually married Margot Timmons. Sweet Jane became a sleeper hit, and sure enough, Trinity Session, an album recorded for a couple hundred bucks, sold 1.5 million copies and charted all over the world. In a world of Guns N' Roses, George Michael, and NXS, a quiet record of old country songs by an introverted group of Canadian siblings is quite a feat. The McKenzie brothers did it too. They also used a single mic. <laughs> Just some guy laying on the floor. <laughs> hey, Mike, you married? 
<laughs> the band tried to capture lightning in a bottle by trying a third attempt single mic album. The Sharon Temple Sessions was recorded between tours in April of 1989 at a freezing and spooky worship center in North Toronto. It didn't work out, but laid the bones for a follow-up studio recording. 1990s, The Caution Horses. Also about this time, they were able to get Towns Van Zant, one of the band's favorite musicians, to open for them on a tour. The juxtaposition of having one of their musical influences and the most poignant songwriter ever supporting them was credence to the power of the Trinity Session. We need to circle back to the songs. Of the 12 songs, there are seven covers and five originals. However, the arrangement of the covers and the songwriting of the originals blend perfectly in the recording. As if the whole album, the songs of Michael Timmons, and the songs of his heroes melt together into one long, darkly ravishing folk trip. The Cowboy Junkies rework a few covers into this album, as they do on many of their albums throughout their career. A lot of bands do this, but only a few are able to inhabit a song as if it were their own, when it also already belongs to someone else. Cover songs are easy, and usually very uninspired. They are simply ways to complete an album that didn't start off with enough material. For most bands, that is. It's not that the Cowboy Junkies are reinterpreting the songs or mirroring back the original, but instead, they're articulating how those songs sound and feel to them. In addition to that, they found a common ground in those songs that wasn't apparent before they played them. The most well-known song from this album is their cover of Sweet Jane. This is a bold move, as the original is the single best rock song of all time to never have a definitive version. The loaded version is very different from the live 1969 version, and both are different from the original unedited version that Lou Reed wanted to release initially. Yet each is nearly perfect. The Cowboy Junkies took that song and may have finally created that elusive definitive version. It most resembles Live 1969, but it's no longer that at all. It's, it's now the Cowboy Junkies. That feat alone would seem to be enough, but then they did something very similar with Blue Moon, and they married those two songs along with every other song on this album. What they focused on in each of these songs was desolation and heartache, and they convey those feelings with pinpoint clarity.
So going back to Sweet Jane, there's a clip of Margot saying that one of the highlights of her career and one of the biggest things that happened was that she actually got to meet Lou Reed, who was, you know, her and her brother's like favorite musician or one of them. And I guess Reed loved the song too. He said it was like the best and most authentic version he'd ever heard. I don't know if he was talking about all cover versions or just Sweet Jane, but he he was really in support of it. He doesn't normally say things like that about anybody. It might be the nicest thing he's ever said. I remember when I, oh, freshman or sophomore in high school, and I got like a best of Velvet Underground CD. That's the first thing I had. And it had the edited uh, version of Sweet Jane. And so that was the version I, I knew. And I was riding around with my dad who had a copy of Trinity Session. And Sweet Jane, their version was on. And I remember telling my dad, like, Lou Reed doesn't do this. Like, this is the whole heavenly wine and roses and the la la la. You know, because I I really had no idea that that was actually part of the song at that point. And he said, I know, isn't it great? And so I remember eventually coming back and telling my dad, like, well, actually, Lou Reed did write that, but still didn't take away from what they did with that song. I don't think anything could. Right. I think the first thing I heard by the Velvet Underground was 1969. So that was the version I knew first. Oh, really? This Yeah. Wow. Misguided Angel was probably the most iconic Timmons song from the session. It was recorded in a single take at the very end of the night with the extra time bought from the security guard bribery. A sort of good girl meets a bad boy, a sped up version of the song could fit in on a Wanda Jackson record. But as it is, the dichotomy of young lust and religious imagery create a seductive, sinful tale. It's also a perfect example of the connection that existed between Michael's songwriting for Margot's singing. I think sometimes that's hard when when the songwriter is not the singer, but that was not a problem for them. They must have had that, you know, fraternal connection or whatever. Yeah, they clearly had a bond that allowed for for them to know each other very well and to feel very open with each other. Otherwise, none of that could have happened. The way she sings, the way he writes and plays, and right. the other guy in the family too. <laughs> I'm sure all, all three of them do. And Peter. Worked. And I think one of the guests they brought was their older brother too, who played guitar too. So I think there's actually four Timmons siblings on, on Trinity Session. That's pretty great. Yep. Dreaming My Dreams With You is an often covered song. First coming to prominence on the essential Waylon Jennings record in 1979, a parade of artists have tried to make it their own, including Colleen Hewitt, Alison Krauss, Cowboy Jack Clement, Emmylou Harris, Crystal Gale, Marianne Faithful, John Prine, and Jewel. Realizing it as the perfect barroom slow dance tune, 
the Cowboy Junkies is perhaps the most incisive and conclusive adaptation. Sonic Travelogue that was a reflection of their tour of the South, 200 miles is the sound of being on the road. The lyrics embody a person understanding the meaningless of time on the road, but also embracing the lifestyle. boozy cover of Patsy Cline's Walking After Midnight would have fit right in playing at One-Eyed Jacks on Twin Peaks with Sherilyn Fenn swaying against a jukebox. Sexy and hypnotizing and just the right amount of evil. The harmonica cuts through the song like a fork through cherry pie while the accordion gives the song a bit of levity to avoid spiraling completely down a black hole. It closes the album not with a bang, not with a whimper, but with a whisper. fine coffee. Like so many bands that find such sudden success with a totally innovative idea, the Cowboy Junkies often seem trapped by their record. That is not to say they weren't able to keep producing amazing music and become a successful band, but they are still beholden to a church in a single day in November. A reflection by one of the band members after the millionth interview referring back to the album was that everybody only gets one story. Trinity was the story of the band. For their part, the junkies seemed to embrace it, even recording a Trinity session revisited 20 years later in the same church with Ryan Adams, Natalie Marchant, and Vic Chestnut. Though you have to love the deliciousness of the irony that the album that was made in total insulation from the trends of the music industry ended up propelling the artist to the biggest stage imaginable. Pretty solid album. I think because the sound is such an important part of it and the church plays as an instrument, it plays as one long song to me. It's got kind of a noirish sound that reminds me a lot of Charles Mingus's Black Saint and the Sinner Lady, and Mm -hmm. playing them back-to-back works really well. And I think as we talk about, like, records made in isolation, it's not as clear as, like, say, Nebraska or Jandic, but I think it was isolated from the times around it and the fact that the band recorded in a place that was so far removed from the music industry and 
recorded in a way that was so far removed from what was recording kind of makes it fit into this this idea of being on your own, trying something new. And I think that sound really resonates to people listening. Because you got to remember, 1988, I mean, we're still a couple years away from Uncle Tupelo. I mean, country music is not a popular thing with uh, the college rock crowd. This was a very different album when it came out, and it was, we mentioned earlier that, or we describe it as eternal at some point, and it is an album that will never sound old. Uh, it will just always sound right. And it's funny because the Timmons, all of them seem really grounded and sweet and nice and very calm. And then you got Peter Moore, who is, he's a total character. You know, he's a total like, you know, I took $100 and some pizza and bribe money and I made this great album. But he's a total tech guy. But I mean, I think he deserves a lot of credit. I mean, I really think he was very innovative in his sound. And he also just t- talks so much about it. It really helps for it really helps us for researching. It's a blabbermouth. We'll talk and talk and talk. Yeah. Yeah. He might as well be a member of the band because if he hadn't had them record in that church, that would be a very different album. And who knows what might have happened with it. And this is another case of the circumstances surrounding the album helping it. I can't. I don't think you can take away from the actual presence of the where they recorded in the music, but I also think it's one of those things where like it's a cool story because this band took one day and they recorded in a church and this is their one session and they had one chance to get it right type thing and it you know sounds so much like a live record so intimate but there's no doubt that calling at the Trinity session and people knowing about the story kind of helped with sales I'm sure a little bit. In the interview, Margot was talking about Lou Reed and meeting Lou Reed. And I think she even talked about her relationship with the album, that they've kind of come to to a place where she's at peace with it. You know, it's bought her house, it's bought her cars. I mean, there, there's no denying that that was the biggest point in their career. The other kind of crazy thing that we kind of talked about is um, I found in one interview where basically they were huge fans of Towns Van Zant, and so they were in Atlanta or somewhere, and he was playing. So they went they went to go see him at the show, and then after they were talking to him, and they're just kind of like, "Hey, do you want to come open for us?" And this was like in early nineties or nineteen ninety, and he's yeah, sure. And he just kind of hopped on their tour bus and followed him around, opening for them for a while. He's such kind of a Troubadour, from you know, from what they say, he's he was not in great shape at that point with his drinking and heroin and whatever else. But very sad story. Yeah, but Margot says she has nothing but fond memories. They, she says she knew knew he had bad nights, but he'd always kind of keep to himself when he was like that. You know, when he was around other people, he would try to keep it together as much as possible. It would have to be amazing to see him perform every night. How humbling to have him open for you. I wish Peter Moore had been more around for that so we'd have some good stories because he's a blabbermouth. Oh, oh, man, we can only imagine. So one last question for you, Joe. Okay. Misguided Angel and Drunken Angel get into a fight. Who wins? Drunken Angel wins, and I'm only really basing that off of Lucinda Williams having the ability to 
beat the crap out of the entire Timmons family. <laughs> she would just find the weakest Timmons, take him out, and then the rest of the Timmons would flee. She might go after the strongest one first, and then the rest of them scurry away after she rips its head off. <laughs> okay. All right. Would you like to play a couple songs now? I would. The first of two songs that will be played for this episode is going to be by the band Luna, and the song is called Sweet Child of Mine.
All right, that was Sweet Child of Mine by Luna, and that was released in 1999 on Baker's Banquet. That's the version that I have on vinyl. It's white vinyl, and as you probably just heard, white vinyl doesn't necessarily always sound very good, and that's something we learned from Cash at Kindercore. It's the only version on vinyl, I think. It's the only one I've seen is the white one for, yep. for that album. It doesn't sound as good as it could. So Luna, around 1998 or so, they were touring. This was before the album came out in 99. They were in a place in Cologne, and no one there had any interest in seeing them. Just didn't care. They were. It was not going to be a good show. Dean Wareham decided to close out the set with that song just to kind of play it. He really likes that song. He does not like Guns N' Roses. I just read his autobiography or memoir, and he talks about Guns N' Roses and that song specifically. He compares it with Wonderwall by Oasis, saying that there are two bands that are absolutely terrible, but they each wrote one great song. He's a little rougher on them than than I was just there. Uh, (laughs) They recorded the song during the Days of Our Nights sessions. That's the album it was on, but hadn't planned on including it on the record. Um, In fact, the lead guitarist was absolutely opposed to it because he hated Guns N' Roses. But Luna's A&R person from Elektra Records, Nancy Jeffries, I think, talked them into adding it to the record because she she thought that the vocals on that album are the best that Dean Wareham has ever sounded, according to her. Uh, Elektra said it wasn't going to get any any radio play, which is what they want. They tried to have someone come in and remix it and add some things to it, but that just really didn't work. It was it was a complete song as it was. But instead of releasing it as a single, they dropped Luna. That was their last record. And the record itself wasn't released for another six months, so it just sat there for a while. And in that time, between them being dropped from Elektra and getting onto Baker's Banquet and having it released, Sheryl Crow had a hit with her version of Sweet Child of Mine. Well, I don't know if that's apples, apples to apples. Yeah, Dean Wareham says that, he sort of jokes that that could have been us. And then he said, <laughs> I'd still rather be me than her. Yes, yeah, that's pretty good. I prefer the uh, Galaxy 500 version of Paradise City. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and my song is Girl from the North Country by Mr. Link Ray.
was Link Ray with Girl from the North Country. Obviously a cover of the Bob Dylan um, song. And that was released originally, the Link Ray version was released in 1965 on the label Swan as a 45, uh, like a promo-only type 45. You know, in this episode we talk about a lot about making covers your own. I think Link Ray did something pretty incredible here, and I've always been floored by how great this song is as a rock song. Dylan has this amazing ballad that I've always heard was about his girlfriend, Susie, at the time, who he was like looking, looking for in Europe. But, you know, just two years later, Link Ray comes out with a song that kind of combines a little bit of Chuck Berry and his very distinctive singing style, which nobody sounds like Link Ray. He just sings oddly. I mean, it's great, but it's odd. And I think this song is really a precursor for his uh, solo record, uh, which is one of the greatest records of all times. But that sound is sort of established here. I have it on a uh, Swan Singles collection that Sundays put out in 2004, which is fantastic. But I really think he... He changed the song from what it was, and by giving it a little bit of this desperate rock and roll edge, it just changes the whole tone from this lovelornness to this, you know, more gritty, heartbroken defiance. It's a beautiful song. I think my favorite version is the one with Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan, but the Link Ray one is awesome. It's, it's almost just different songs. You know, they really are. All right, well, I think that about does it. We want to go ahead and thank Pantheon Podcast. Um, that's our podcast network, and they give us a lot of support and help us out. Lots of great podcasts. Please check them out. In fact, we can tell you one to check out because we were on it. We were on a recent episode of Love That Album. You want to talk about that, Joe? Our friend Morris who is the host of Love That Album podcast and the See Here podcast, both of which are awesome, and we are huge fans and have been for a long time. He asked a few people at Pantheon to be guests on his show to discuss their most favorite live album of all time. And we chose Take No Prisoners. We'll put a link up to that so that if you want, you can hear it. It was a lot of fun to record and... I think if you want to know why that is the best live album of all time, not just our favorite, it's the best, <laughs> uh, you should listen to that episode. We lay down the facts. It's been peer-reviewed. It's science. Yep. It also will cure coronavirus. <laughs> I've listened to it, and I don't have it, so... There you go. It's at least as good as that malaria drug. <laughs> it hasn't specifically killed anybody that they know of. <laughs> I'm sure many people have died from listening to Take No Prisoners, but not recently. I think the autopsies have been inconclusive. <laughs> we really appreciate him letting us come on his show and talk about that. There's a lot of fun. People talk about Cheap Trick at Budokan and Wings Over America and Neil Young, Rust Never Sleeps or Live Rust. A bunch of cool records. So definitely worth checking out. And do we have social media? We do. Please come find us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle on those places is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. We have a Facebook page. We'd love it if you jumped in there and, and said hello or howdy or whatever you want to do. 
And you can email us anytime at highwayhifipodcast at gmail.com. And we've had a lot of people reaching out recently, which is just awesome. Thank you so much to everybody who's emailed us or tweeted at us or left an Instagram message. We really appreciate it. It's so cool to us that you're out there listening and that we're not just kind of talking to ourselves. It's, it just means means the world to us that other people enjoy this, and we and we, we do hope you enjoy it. We we love doing it. We'll do, we'll do something like this no matter what, uh, whether there's a mic in front of us or not. And everybody who's reached out has been kind and decent and just, yeah. they sound like wonderful people. So that's really great. The other thing that's been awesome is a few people have given us some reviews on like Apple or whatever. I guess that really helps other people find us. So if you have time and you're bored and you want to give us a great review, um, we would be indebted, really. Or tell a friend who loves music. Pick one of the episodes that's one of your favorites and share it. We appreciate you. That's all I'm trying to say. Also, in this time, we want to uh, remind you to, if you can, if you have some, some money that you could spend. I know a lot of people are, are suffering. A lot of people are hurting. Uh, we really need to try to help record stores, musicians, record labels. If you can, um, you know, find find a way to spend some money on worthy independent uh, music makers or stores or whatever. That's really important right now. I know they're hurting, and I'm worried that once this is all over, we may not have as many great record stores. So if you can, throw a few bucks, treat yourself. All right, well, we will see you next time. Hey, we, we talked about a freezer and we didn't once mention Jeffrey Dahmer. Nope, nope. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.